2: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fia Narduzzi an editor here at the TLS, and I'm pleased to say our arts editor, Lucy Dallas, is back with me again after a week away. Lucy, welcome back.
3: Thank you. Thank you for letting me come back.
2: <laughs> How could I not? Well, you could have
3: changed the locks, you know, or something. Yeah, the
2: audio equivalent of that. It would be very lonely without you. <laughs> um, back in the days when words like away and holiday actually meant something because there was a world out there to discover and participate in I might I might have asked you for stories from your travels as it is I'll be happy I'll make do with armchair travels what have you been reading Lucy? Uh,
3: I can I've gone quite far in the old armchair Um, I went to space oh quite a lot actually I was in space quite a lot I was reading uh, a couple of books by Becky Chambers It's a related trilogy, and I was reading number two and number three, and the second one is really good. It's about AI. There's a few science fiction books that are talking about this kind of idea. It's like the idea of distributed intelligence and what would happen to it if you had to sort of package it into a human. There's a very good book called Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie, which came out a few years ago, which is the same kind of thing. And there's this, this AI, which is used to sort of being able to see everything and know everything and plug into all the systems, and then it has to go into a human body. It's not a real, you know, they haven't taken over a real person. It's it's a body made for that purpose. And they have to kind of come to terms with how it works and, and the feelings and sensations and how to interact with people and how to treat other AIs and... And this AI makes friends with a clone and another disembodied AI It's jolly good
2: we're following this this AI's journey across three novels did you say
3: No it's a sort of it's one world but actually the, the different stories are quite distinct and it's the second one which is about the AI There's a really good bitch because she's used to it uh, she's got a camera basically in every room. And when she's a human, the place she likes best is sitting in the corner, ideally sort of sitting up as high as she can in the corner to replicate the viewpoint of where the camera would be. That's the only way that she can feel kind of not weird about it. But if you're a human, also you're not supposed to... She She's kind of contraband. You're not supposed to put AIs into human bodies, so she has to pretend to be human. So if you're human and you spend your whole time standing, you know, on a table in the corner so that you can survey the whole room, people begin to ask questions. As I do.
2: Yes, well, you know... I just don't feel like I'm in control of a situation unless I'm standing on a table in the corner surveying the whole room.
3: It's because your massive distributed intelligence finds it difficult... <laughs> To just be packed down to one viewpoint. That's what That must is. be it.
2: That must be it. And,
3: and there's all sorts of philosophical questions about how you treat AIs, how you treat humans, how you treat clones, you
2: know, all of this sort of thing. Jolly interesting, I think. It sounds it. Um, well, while you were off, we got an email from a listener, Adrian Lurson in, in Northern California, and he's following up on our discussion of Amaranth a couple of weeks ago. So we've gone from futuristic AI right back to the soil and to ancient grain here, and, um, early on in the pandemic he says he ordered an envelope of 2500 amaranth seeds with the intention of growing them in a dark cupboard in a small tub of soil because amaranth sprouts are astonishingly nutritious uh, nothing happened though and so he chucked the soil out into the garden to reuse it and lo an amaranthine explosion
3: that's what you want an can amaranthine explosion i can <laughs>
2: Well, he sent a picture, didn't yeah. he? Did I send you the yeah, picture? I saw it. They they're very lovely. impressive. Yeah, they were great. I wonder if he
3: was he trying to grow them as microgreens because normally they yes. wouldn't grow in a dark cupboard. You know, they're they're normally like most veg, they need quite a lot of sunlight actually. But maybe there are some microgreens that you grow in the dark. Yeah,
2: I wonder. He was very specific about a small tub of soil in a dark cupboard, and and that it was for micro um, greens. So. I don't know I'll have to check in um, but he calls them volunteers that these this manifestation in the garden which is one of my my favorite botanical it's, they're terms. wonderful
3: volunteers I've got volunteer uh, evening primrose plants at the at the allotment I realized the other day I didn't know what they were and then I looked it up oh lovely uh, and it's really nice because you don't have to do anything nature just gives you this lovely thing of course I suppose weeds are volunteers as well it depends how you look on them well
2: I think yeah I think I wonder whether the difference between volunteers and weeds is just a sort of you know a the A volunteer is something that you then decide to cultivate, whereas weeds are something that you want to get rid of. yeah, um, well, so it's sort of it's in it's in the eye of the beholder type matter. exactly,
3: yeah,
2: exactly. Um, it reminded me of an essay though that, that we had exactly this time last year, in fact, it was um a missive from Lydia Davis's garden where she found herself being guided by Henry David Thoreau's observations on wild plants. Uh, she came on the podcast to talk about it, in fact, but there's this particularly lovely part about her reacquaintance with re-evaluation of, um, actually, the the pokeweed, and she recalls how coming up on Ebenezer Hubbard's hillside, it it quite dazzled Thoreau with its purple stems gracefully drooping with its vigour, its brilliant colour, its eccentric habit of displaying all stages, blossoms, green fruit and ripe fruit all at once, and she says that this year she was dazzled too. I turned to Thoreau, she says, and she learns it is poisonous to humans in parts, Though early in the season, the emerging shoots can be cooked and eaten like asparagus. It is a host plant for the giant leopard moth, and its spikes of sweet-smelling white blossoms provide nectar for other insects, as well as for the ruby-throated hummingbird. What Thoreau describes as its great drooping cylindrical racemes of blackish-purple berries are a rich food for the birds before their fall migration. For those birds that do not leave, the berries remain until late winter. And so she says... I left it in place.
3: It is wonderful, isn't it? And I had a look at the pokeweed, the the horrible, which is a horrible name. And it is really beautiful. But boy, it looks poisonous. I think if you came across it, you know, um, and you didn't know anything about anything, and even if you were starving in the wild, you might think twice.
2: Well, generally something incredibly brightly coloured, you tend to... Because I think amaranth, I think the plant itself is poisonous to certainly to some mammals. Anyway, so anything that's really it, brightly coloured. You
3: told me that I didn't. Oh, know. don't go
2: eating the fronds or, <laughs> okay. or the okay. flowers. No, I I'm pretty
3: sure they're poisonous. Okay, good. That's good to know. And the, and the pokeweed has got these very dark red stems and then these black berries hanging off it. I mean, it looks brilliant, but it it looks a bit like it's kind of saying, "Don't mess with me unless you know what you're doing."
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that concludes this week's gardening um, segment of the TLS oh, Welcome to Gardener's Question. <laughs> Coming up on this week's show, Thomas de Quincey made use of a different brightly coloured plant. It is opium rather than the opium eater he writes in his most famous work, Confessions, who is the true hero of the tale. He remains a difficult figure to pin down for study, but as a new selection of his writing appears, Jane Darcy will help us try. We'll also be dropping in on Rimbaud and Verlaine for just a brief moment, as they walked the streets of London in 1872. But first we'll turn to Shirley Jackson, a writer whose obituary in Time Magazine in 1965 described her as a contented wife and good-humoured mother of four, who also happened to be one of the 20th century's most accomplished writers of terror, a master of Gothic mystery and a miner of the darkest recesses of the human mind. Critics have tended to frame this as a surprising contradiction, a case of split personality, when really it's not like that at all. A new film, Shirley, directed by Josephine Decker, is our reason, should one be required, for returning to Shirley Jackson this week. And here to tell us more is the critic and writer, Lucy Scholes. Hello, Lucy.
4: Hi, Thea. Nice to be here.
2: It's nice to have you. Um, and I thought you might just start us off by reading us that famous, excellent opening from The Haunting of Hill House, just a sort of set the mood and I should say also my house is in the grip of gale force winds at the moment so if we're if we're lucky there'll be some well-timed howling
4: (laughs) okay brilliant um right no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality even larks and katydids are supposed by some to dream hill house not sane stood by itself against its hills holding darkness within it had stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more Within, walls continued upright, bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there walked alone.
2: Doors were sensibly shut. (laughs) That's just, I'm,
3: I,
4: I, I, I,
2: that's
3: scary enough for me, just that paragraph, I have to say.
2: (laughs) This is the Halloween. And we'll end the
3: podcast there. brilliant, isn't it? Yeah,
4: it's such a strange, evocative, weird opening,
3: I think. And really not expected as well. Yes, because it's talking about the house, and she makes a point of saying, not sane. (laughs) Let's be clear about that.
2: Um, Is it, I mean, how is Shirley Jackson remembered these days? Do you think it is for works like this one, like, like The Haunting of Hill House? Because there's another, I mean, she... I mean, what is it? What is it? What is the work that people most identify her with?
4: Do you think? I think it is probably The Haunting of Hill House or um, We Have Always Lived in a Castle. So those two novels. And then, of course, her short story, The Lottery, which caused such consternation when it was first published in The New Yorker. I think those are the three things that most people would
2: associate with her. Because, I mean, I suppose the reason I ask is because that's an inversion of the picture that was the case in her own time, wasn't it? I mean, I didn't realise that. It was actually her memoirs of of motherhood and domesticity. There uh, there was life among the savages and raising demons. And those were the bestsellers. Those were the things that, sort of made her
4: yes it's quite interesting because I think um Ruth Franklin in her book describes those as being the sort of you know proto mommy blog type uh, works and they were the ones that made um Jackson quite a lot of money and made her famous but I think if I remember correctly from reading Franklin's brilliant biography that um there are a lot of people who even sort of lived in uh the same town as Jackson who didn't rec- didn't sort of realize that she was the writer and also didn't put two and two together that she was the writer they it wasn't They couldn't turn together that she was the writer who wrote the sort of um, the more dramatic horror stories and then the one who also wrote these kind of mommy blog type things. So they're very different
3: types of writing.
2: Yeah, I suppose it was it was useful and, and kind of felt healthier to be able to draw a really clear line between the two the two women.
3: Having said that, can I just point out that her two books about motherhood are called Life Among the Savages and Women*. <laughs> <Raven Demon. laughs> Not, There is a little bit of crossover, is there? Uh,
4: I think so. I think she has a kind of knack of seeing the uncanny. It doesn't necessarily need to be the kind of uh, the sort of uh, the haunting and the very scary macabre uncanny, but there's something about the way that she turns her life into art in those books that I don't think sits
2: too strangely against what she's doing in her more scary stories. But The idea of her as this kind of, you know, the equivalent of, of the modern day mommy blogger, as you, as you mentioned there. I mean, is that something to do with why she fell out of fashion after her death? I mean, the books didn't really chime with second wave feminism, or, or was there another reason?
4: Mm, that's an inquest- interesting question. I'm actually really not sure. I presume... To a certain extent, I think she was probably a sort of a slightly problematic figure as a feminist because she had this sort of very domesticated side of her life, obviously. And then the writing on top of that. I don't know exactly when I don't know if either you two know when was there a sort of more recent renaissance in being interested in her scary work or is it just the the sort of mommy blog stuff that's completely fallen out of fashion?
2: I don't know. I mean, I wondered whether it was because there was the Judy Oppenheimer biography, wasn't there? And that was in 1988. And I wondered whether that was, I mean, surely that can be credited with having revived interest of her overall. And so with that came came both aspects because she went down that, Oppenheimer went down that quite predictable route of, of, of sort of putting the two, versions of Shirley Jackson side by side, didn't she? I
4: haven't read that biography, actually. Is it, is it worth reading?
2: Okay, so don't get me wrong. Judy Oppenheimer, it was a tremendous service, and it was great, and it was very important to have Shirley Jackson reconsidered, I think, uh, in the 80s after this period of, of sort of having slipped off the radar. And I, I think just Ruth Franklin's is more nuanced. Um, you've read the Ruth Franklin one.
4: Yes, yes, I have, and I thought that was brilliantly written. I mean, I think... it. I find it sort of fascinating that the film decided to go down the route of using the novel Shirley that had been written, which I think is also very good, but they're two really different beasts of books um to deal with here. But I do think there's something the Shirley, the the Ruth Franklin biography is is not only brilliant in terms of the details and the kind of research that's obviously gone into it but it it also reads very
2: much like a sort of a novel about her life I well I found it such and as you say uh into all of this Sally's this new film called Simply Shirley by Josephine Decker it's about as far from a traditional biopic as you can get. Can you tell us about about that, about that work of fiction as well, actually, the original?
4: Well, the original is a novel called Shirley by Susan Scarf Merrill. And it was written before the Ruth Franklin biography, I think, by a couple of years. And it's very much, I mean, I think it's, it's a really fascinating novel and it does something the kind of thing that I quite enjoy personally, where it takes the sort of atmosphere that surrounds the writer in question. It takes, I think it takes a lot of influence from Jackson's work more so than her life. It does build on, you know... it, it talks about the period where she's writing her novel Hangs a Man, which was a real novel that she wrote, but it sort of mixes up when that was in the actual chronology of her life. So it sort of makes sense within this world of the novel. And then the film does something sort of even more with that. So they're working with the sort of bare bones of truth and, re, and you know, the the authentic story of Jackson's life, but adding things and taking them away that will, that will fit the story. But I think, like I say, in my review, for me, it's sort of, almost as something that comes closer to the reality of of Jackson and her work. I I don't think a kind of traditional, you know, cradle to grave type biography might not capture the real atmosphere of of what was going on in Jackson's head and what was clearly kind of inspiring her writing in the way that something like Decker's film can do.
3: It's quite a daring and quite a creative approach to say, okay you know, we're going to, this is not actually what happened, but we're going to conjure up the atmosphere of a life.
4: Yes, I mean, I, I really like that. I don't know. I think it, it takes, I think I like the sort of balls it takes to just say, um, yeah, I'm going to just go for it and, and I'm going to pick out the things that I think are important. I think it's a, a new way of looking at something as well. I think it makes us as readers or viewers think about the person differently, think about their work differently. I mean, certainly watching the film made me want to go back and read Jackson's work again. And I think that's a kind of great result for a film to have like this, I think.
2: And it feels like the film and the novel, as well, on, on uh, from which it sort of draws so heavily, it seems like they were both created with that in mind. They're, they're they're clearly steeped in a love of Jackson's work, and I suppose the novel and the film both are centered around a story in which Rose Nemzer and her husband, a young married couple, come to live with the Jacksons in their home, um, and everything sort of follows from that. It's so clever because you know Jackson's own home then becomes the site of these. Odd, trippy, psychological goings on. And it's so, there are so many nods to Jackson's own work in the film itself. I think the fact that when the Nemses arrive at the house, Stanley Hyman is wearing this crown of like laurel or some kind of plant like as though he's in the middle of some you know fertility ritual some kind of bacchanalian festival is underway here and the mind then flips back to the lottery for just a second it's full of those sorts of references isn't it well
4: that's what I mean I think I think it's put together you know written directed um you know adapted from uh, all these people are they they clearly have a great kind of love and appreciation of Jackson's work and that to me came across in the film completely I mean I'm also a fan of Decker's work Anyway, but I think it—I think it was a sort of perfect match, really.
2: And one of one of the things that is particularly interesting about the approach that this film takes is the way that it deals with Jackson as a mother. So we've talked um, already about how she has been split into as the mother and and then this writer of incredibly dark stories, and people sort of struggle to bring them together. And now we're approaching being able to do that. This film, in a sense, it removes the strand of Jackson as a mother. And you, you make the point that had this been a, a more conventional biopic, Sticklers would point out that by the 60s, all four of Jackson's children would have been born. So what is it doing? Because obviously it's doing something more interesting. than
4: that. I mean, on the one hand, I think, Part of me just wants to say, well, it's, you know, this is a clearly an artistic decision that Decker and, and um, Sarah Gubbins, who wrote the screenplay, have decided to do in the novel, in Susan Merrill's novel, the children are still there, but they're um, some of them are not living at home anymore, they're older. But I think the more I watched the film, the more I started to wonder whether we were supposed to Maybe look at the figure of Rose, the younger woman in the house, as that kind of more domesticated um, maternal side of Jackson. When Rose arrives at um, Jackson's house, she had been her husband's pupil. Um, she'd been one of his students and now she's married to him and so she ends up having to give up her studies in order to sort of look after Jackson who's a bit of a sort of art monster stuck around the house refusing to get out of bed and as Rose gets shunted off into the kitchen she's also in the early phases of pregnancy so she takes on this very domesticated role you know, doing the cooking and some of the cleaning then she has a baby and considering there's so much sort of weird slippage back and forth and the relationship between these two women which becomes the central thrust of the drama is such a sort of odd one like it's sort of it's erotic but it's also you know there's no actual sort of I don't know, you can't really tell whether they're really attracted to each other or not in the one minute they're sort of thick as thieves the next they're really struggling with each other and I think this sort of slippage um, it made me wonder whether what Decker was trying to do was look at Shirley's sort of the two halves of Shirley's life between these two characters and split them between the two.
2: I suppose it's interesting as well because it seems fitting when you consider Bird's Nest from 1954 Jackson's novel that I mean that's about a protagonist's descent into multiple personality disorder so I wonder as well if it's just another nod back to to that
4: well this is the thing that's what i thought you can find a lot of examples in jackson's work where she uses often sort of you know when she does things like that either splitting like you say through personal um multiple personality disorder or when she has two women like in the haunting of hill house when you have um eleanor versus kind of theodora and these two sort of they they seem like they're the two sides of one person as it were so i think that's what allowed me to make this interpretation let's say like you say because the whole film seems to be making these sort of nods these references to Jackson's work it doesn't seem like a huge step to then um, think you know make this kind of bigger association
3: is it a good film to watch at Halloween (laughs) (laughs) it sounds I mean it's incredibly interesting all of it but it does also sound I'm very faint of heart for this kind of thing it also sounds quite scary and kind of um, thrilling and upsetting is that right or not? I think it's like a horror film, but without the horror, without the sort of blood and guts and
4: gore, Mm. um, because it keeps you on this sort of knife edge throughout. Like, I wouldn't have been surprised if it hadn't turned into a bloodbath at some point. It has that real sort of edge of tension. There's there's these amazing sort of shrieking strings on the soundtrack. This camera does odd things. It sort of, it shifts and it shakes around and it follows, you know, the backs of people's head when you want to take in a different part of the scene. And, you know, you're never quite sure what you're going to see next. So for me, it definitely definitely kept me on the edge of my seat but without ever uh, you know sort of
2: falling down the classic horror tropes let's say so i would say yeah definitely watch it for halloween you could almost imagine this the sort of you know strap line for it would be something like you know but she wouldn't would she yeah. and it's like the suspense <laughs> yes. of just waiting to see i mean cuz i mean so much of her work is set in this you know kind of polite neat little american provincial town uh kind of atmosphere where everyone's watching and rumors are, are spread and and there's you know the slightly odd character who's marginalized up in the old house uh, who you know people are slightly scared of and stuff and shirley is that certainly in this oh film, yeah there's so many that character
4: there's so many moments in it where you just think and i and i you know like i said i wouldn't be surprised had something more terrible happened, not that not that kind of you know weird things don't happen in this, but had it turned into something much uh, more violent, I, I wouldn't have been shocked because it feels like everything is, like you say, you know, is it it's on this knife edge the entire time? Is she going to do something awful? Is someone else going to do something awful? And I think because it also plays with plays quite cleverly with her writing of hangs a man which was based on the real life disappearance of a student at the college that her husband taught at so one of the a student who'd gone off onto a local hiking trail and had disappeared and they never found you know i don't think they ever found the body actually Um, and so this sort of plays in jackson's mind and it's the basis of her novel hangs a man and in the film she keeps sort of you see these i suppose sort of not flashbacks obviously but you see the sort of um, the workings of her mind and she's getting rose confused with this missing student or the student she's writing about and so there are all these levels again it relates back to those sort of multiple personalities I think and so you have got this sense of this horrible thing that did happen in real life
2: running as a sort of undercurrent through the film as well you said it sort of it makes you want to go back to the work so do you do you have a favorite novel or story one that you would sort of one that you feel yourself on the verge of slipping back into or one that you would recommend to anyone unfamiliar with Jackson?
4: I think if you haven't read Jackson before, read The Lottery because it's such a strange, unnerving story. And I think it deals with the young canny particularly well. I mean, you know, Haunting of Hill House and We Have Always Lived in the Castle are brilliant. I'd also recommend those next, but they're definitely more what one might expect as a sort of... um, you know, a scary story for Halloween, let's say, but the lottery is both absolutely frightening and, and appalling, but completely grounded in the everyday, which I think makes it all the more unnerving. And I love the story around it, you know, people who wrote into the New Yorker and cancelled their subscription because of it. Some people who want to know if it was actually true, if it was reportage. I mean, it's just pretty, it was the cat person of its day. And you know, that in itself is fascinating.
2: I wonder if it is still to date. I mean, you you know, you say about the it being the, the cat person of its day, and that's both in terms of Uh, Well, that's in terms of the magnitude of of people getting in touch, the, the number of letters that they received. It was, I think, at the time the most number of letters that they'd re- received for any work of fiction. I wonder whether it still holds that title, whether it's been replaced now by Cat Person.
4: Oh, yeah, I don't know, of course. That would be interesting to find out, wouldn't it? Maybe Cat Person slightly different because it went viral, obviously. It did, yes. But, you well, know, the lottery would well, have, Shirley would have, have done it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: she would have definitely gone viral
4: had that been the, had that been an option available. So, you know,
2: yeah. Well, I'm glad we've settled that. Um, <laughs> Lucy Skulls, <Scholes, laughs> thank you very much for joining us. You're
4: welcome. Thanks for having me.
2: Still to come on the show, Rimbaud and Verlaine's Time in London, and a new edition of Selected Writings by Thomas de Quincy that offers a fine opportunity to revisit the life and work of this man who could be as unpredictable and often dazzling as the opium-inspired visions he purportedly experienced. And if you have enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, perhaps you'll consider subscribing to the TLS or buying a subscription as a gift for someone else. You'll find all the details online at the-tls.co.uk. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Lucy Dallas, as we often do, we are dipping into the NB page of this week's issue. Um, do you want to tell us about lot 86, which is going up for sale at Christie's very soon? What is it?
3: Well, if you have a spare, let's say, 80 to 90,000 euros, which is about sort of 70 to 80,000 pounds. And you've got nothing else happening on November the 3rd. which is not an important date at all in the World Diary. Uh, you go to Christie's. I suppose it must be Christie's Paris. I mean, I guess it must be. Um, they've got a sale of rare um, books and manuscripts. And they have a letter from Félix Rigami to his brother slagging off a couple of French poets who've descended on him. He's living in London as an artist, and it's quite a gossipy letter. He gives his brother some sort of advice and a bit of gossip, and then he says, oh, you never guess who I've got hanging around here. And it is, in fact, uh, Rimbaud and Verlaine, because they are sort of on the run, because um, Rimbaud has erupted onto the French scene as a 16-year-old, I think, and sort of just gone off with Verlaine. Verlaine has dumped his young wife and child, and they go to Brussels first, I think, and then they, they come to London. And there's this famous picture, there's a sketch that Regamé has done of them, where Verlaine is looking back at Rimbaud, and Rimbaud looks pretty unkempt. And indeed, he, he he talks about them in... He talks about Rimbaud in quite rude, rude terms. He calls him hideous,
2: doesn't he? Doesn't he say yeah, he's he
3: does. He says... Um, Verlaine, uh, beau à sa manière, so, you know, he's, you know, good-looking in his way, Beau hideous. But they had beef, if I could put it like that, because um, Regamé had been part of, uh, and Verlaine had been part of a group in Paris called, brilliantly called, the Villains Bonhommes, which is like the kind of nasty guys club. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think of a word for it, like horrible blokes or nasty guys, you know. <laughs>
2: Nasty guys is good. <laughs> Horrible blokes is just very British and a bit underwhelming. That just sounds awful, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, no, not, yeah,
3: yeah, no. And they were, they were kind of, they were, they were quite cool and, and, uh, um, they considered themselves to be quite radical and shocking. And there was also an offshoot, uh, uh from that group called the Zutiste from, I think Rambo went along to both of those groups. And the Zutistes, I was, checking where the name came from, because it comes from Zut, you know, when when we... Like Zut alors. Exactly. Yeah. When people in Asterix, actually not yeah. in Asterix, but in, maybe in Tintin, yeah. they would say Zut alors. And it sounds very old fashioned to us, but Zut was quite, it was like damn. Mm. So the Zutists were like the 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 damned, you know, there, there were these kind of groups. Uh, and Rambo came along um, as a 16 year old from the sticks, and completely turned them upside down because he really did not give a monkeys. They affected not to, but he really didn't. And he got chucked out of the um, nasty guys for being too much of a nasty guy, basically. <laughs> I think he ended up hitting one of them. One of them, one of them was dec- declaiming one of his poems, and I think, and, and Humboldt was just shouting, Merde, which is, you know, is a critical reaction. It's not very polite. It's not very polite, no. I think maybe he was a nasty guy. <laughs> and, and, then, and then he got into some sort of fight with someone else. And him and Verlaine um, dashed off. And this this picture is very famous because it's it's the only it's the only sort of documentation of them at that time in London.
2: But we sort of we we've seen this picture before, haven't we? Because there was there's a there's a volume of of um of the artist's sketches in which it appears, and that's from the 1890s, But this one is an earlier one, and it sort of suggests that the artist revised his opinion. Well, I
3: think he was just a bit more polite. Yes. Yeah, so that so the there was a book that he published after Verlaine had died, and Verlaine was a friend of his, Regamy. He, he he was in the nasty guys you know they were all they were sort of friends and and for them rambo just came along and and kind of put a bomb in their circle and and sort of took Verlaine away which is partly why he's ruder about him yes and so he published a book after Verlaine had died with with the picture in uh, and being a bit more polite um not that much more polite but it, he he does um change his version a little bit and this letter has remained within the family um Since I think whatever it was, since since the 1870s, so this is the first time that that people have been able to see the actual letter that it came from. So, and as I say, it's a snip at um, 80 or 90 thousand pounds.
2: <laughs> um, and it's I mean it's 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 worth emphasising probably that when um, you know 1872, when these two poets were wandering the streets of London, they were despised by most people. I think they were really no one wanted to have anything to do with them. They were really down and out. I think they were living in. Is it Covent Garden? No, it would have been Bloomsbury. They were living in Bloomsbury, drinking heavily. Yes.
3: Yeah, they were. He says in the letter, oh, you know, he says, guess who I've had hanging around. Um, and then he says, oh, God, you know, Humble and Valerne, he says, they both turned up uh, uh, without any clothes. Lange, he says, which I think <sighs> just means they haven't got any clothes. It can mean underwear. I don't think he meant that. I think he just meant they got no, you know, they haven't got any proper clothes you know and they just immediately went for the gin which yeah. and he which he's very disapproving of and he thinks that they're not going to um stay on very good terms for very long and
1: he was
2: right they they, <laughs> yes. they very much didn't this was a very particular moment in their i think rambo called it a domestic fast this this relationship this was a very particular moment after which i mean pretty much everything just yes. Disintegrated. Yes,
3: and then and then they they travelled around a bit, and then there's the scene in Brussels when they have a big fight, and Valen goes and gets a revolver and um and shoots him. Um, and then that doesn't go well.
2: It doesn't really get much better for them after that after that moment. Yeah, in London. Hamble,
3: and then Rambo ends up as a sort of gun runner. Uh, doesn't he I think in North Africa
2: yeah completely removes literature from his life he just well he was I think that part I mean he was uh, I mean there's the
3: his extraordinary writing of course which just kind of I think it just I think it just really blew everyone's minds and as I say there was this group you know the the the, the nasty guys I mean I'm I'm mocking them a bit but they they were quite counter-cultural but he was just something else nobody knew what to do with him and as you say, yeah, he removed himself after a while. He just went, I'm not doing this anymore. And he didn't.
2: And off he went. Well, speaking of disreputable writers, uh, our next subject is Thomas De Quincey, or Peter Quince, as the words like to call him, a rather loaded reference there to Shakespeare's bookish but decidedly secondary character. Uh, as Jane Darcy makes clear in her piece this week, though, there is nothing secondary about him. Reviewing a new selection of De Quincey's writing edited by Robert Morrison, Darcy grapples with this figure, who seemed forever to be grappling with himself. She joins us on the line now to tell us more. Hello. Um, So Thomas de Quincy, not an easy figure to get to know. Um, Shall we start with his, his
5: beginnings? It sounds a strange thing to say about him, but the fact that he was born in 1785 defines everything about him because he was 15 years younger than Wordsworth. And it's Wordsworth who is first his lodestar uh, he idolises him. He dreams when he's in London of going north to meet him. He writes to him as a young man, writes fan mail. Wordsworth says, come and see me. And it's like a fairy tale. Twice he gets himself as far as Coniston can see the little white cottage. He claims I don't know where from and then runs away. And then the third time he meets Wordsworth. And by then it's um, 1807 and it's a huge success. But with the problem of meeting your heroes, of course, um, he quite quickly becomes disillusioned. And sometimes I feel in reading the rest of De Quincey that all his life he is trying to hack down his erstwhile hero with um, diminishing ways. Well, and and in a sense, it's a, you know, it's a lesson in that
2: thing of of never meeting your heroes. But that's as much for the benefit of the hero as, as
5: for the fan. Yes. It doesn't really work out for either of them. No, I mean, Wordsworth wasn't, it mattered less to him and he, know, he liked De Quincey. Dorothy Wordsworth thought he was wonderful. He's like one of the family. He's so loving and gentle and happy. Wordsworth uses De Quincey. So there's some stage where Wordsworth gets very anxious about the convention of Cintra and writes this angry pamphlet. And it's De Quincey who has to go up to London and deal with the publishers And he'd been in much the same position earlier with Coleridge, where he's a sort of dog's body. And in between, he was set to tutor Wordsworth's son, John, and that wasn't a great success either. But it's not as if Wordsworth ever idolised Quincy, I'm afraid. No,
2: there's a very clear sense in well, you describe his recollections of the late Perts as spectacularly Mm. waspish. There's a sort of a a getting your own back. Robert Southey called him one of the greatest scoundrels living. Yes. (laughs) Uh, How much of a sensation was this when it came out?
5: Well, it was, and particularly, I mean, when it was sort of, the essays were coming out in um, Tate's Edinburgh magazine at the end of the 1830s, and the Coleridge's were appalled. Coleridge had just died, hence writing this essay. And he very typical of his essays is to begin with something absolutely adulatory he was the greatest mind he'd ever met how wonderful and then quite quickly straight into Coleridge the opium addict and Coleridge the plagiarizer which you felt he could have saved that up for later really and uh, Coleridge's were very upset Sarah Coleridge the daughter uh, in particular and then with Wordsworth I th- think they may have expected more of him like that I think they're more sort of lofty but he was really very very unpleasant about them do you think it's also because so he was
3: he would he would have just missed out on the kind of french revolution on on the fervor of that and the time when that seemed like a wonderful hopeful project and, and then, you know, the, the realisation that it was all going horribly wrong. Do you think that was an important thing, that he, he, he missed that point?
5: I think so. Um, I think he, again, focusing on the early details, before he meets Wordsworth, he stays a summer in Everton. So he's outside Liverpool and he gets to meet. Some of the Liverpool literati, including a man I'm very interested in, um, James Currie, who wrote a biography of Robert Burns and William Roscoe, and they campaigned for the abolition of slavery. They uh, were very active in all sorts of important issues of the day, radical issues. When. De Quincey gets around to writing this up many years later they've turned into sort of dreadful old worthies and he De Quincey is the one who's always been the radical and it just isn't true he was much more sort of conservative by nature so yes another of his sort of heroes that he has to reduce down to size and I also think he's just in as much as the early romantics had a sense of themselves He was just the wrong decade. I mean, in the 70s, you get Wordsworth, his sister, seventeen seventy-one, Southey, I think, 72. Byron is the only one in the 1780s. And it's a long time before you then get the Keats and Shelley. And he's just betwixt and between. He's not part of the gang. Also, he's not writing anything when he meets them. Um, So he has great ambitions for himself, but he's not sure in what direction, which seems normal for a young man. I mean, certainly when, when we look back now,
2: his most important work, the, the work for which he is most known, is um, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. It's his prelude, in a sense. Yes. You know, the work that, yes. That, that defines him. Why is it such an important work? I mean, I mean that's, I, I'm aware that that's a
5: huge question and the reasons <laughs> are many. It had I mean when it was published in uh, a magazine it was only the first part and it was an instant success and it came out in book form the next year it was 1822. It's not a straightforward confession in any sense it's very what becomes typical to Quincy very digressive he wanders he suddenly gives you extraordinary detail and then he disappears off into deep thoughts about things and you are trailing along behind him sort of intrigued plus he's so candid about his opium use now of course it was perfectly legal then and he does blow the whistle on various public figures who are using opium fairly frequently too but he does show you something of the glory of it he does describe i'm just looking through my notes to see if i can find the bit where he is saying how wonderful it is um he claims he only took it for toothache but they also (laughs) um when he takes it um here was a panacea and then he writes something in greek that i can't translate because he's always putting things in greek and latin here was a panacea for all human woes. Here was the secret of happiness about which philosophers have disputed for so many ages. at Once discovered, happiness might now be bought for a penny and carried in the waistcoat pocket. Portable ecstasies might be corked up in a pint bottle and peace of mind could be sent down in gallons by the mail coach. That seems more about the sort of democratic nature of it. It was cheaper than alcohol. And he has a wonderful bit in Confessions where he talks about a time in Manchester where the druggists on a Saturday night lay out... Grains of opium, ready for the poor folk who've worked all week to come in and buy their little bit of entertainment. He seems a bit. He seems like he's a bit of a hypocrite, really. I mean, also in terms of the way he he wrote about
2: Coleridge, you mentioned earlier, and his use of of, of drugs. It Absolutely. seems almost like he's saying that only he can be the true and you know virtuous ex- experiencer of this of this magical thing. No, he's quite breathtaking. His hypocrisy. I, I, <laughs> I really enjoy. He seems laughing.
3: like the kind of ultimate. Unreliable narrator, which which can be, I mean, it's completely fascinating, as you said. There's this very impressionistic things and 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 this form that's not really like anything else that's been written. But also, as you say, when he writes about himself or about other people,
5: you can't rely on it. And I, there's a bit of me that just thinks, well, again, isn't that very modernist? Of course, we know Virginia Woolf really admired him before that Baudelaire, but sometimes i think the bit i picked up on in the essay was when he finally in 1845 50 years after his sister died when she was a child and he was a child he suddenly writes about her death and he hasn't mentioned it before and yet it feels like it's the seminal thing the loss of this girl and you realize in his literature there's a sort of pattern of lost girls and you wonder whether there is a deeper truth that isn't necessarily the literal truth and that's one side I would say that sometimes he's getting at a sort of psychological truth but when it comes to damning other people you know early on with Coleridge he describes Coleridge lecturing and makes him sound like the ancient mariner he's got these chapped lips that are blackened and he's completely incoherent which wasn't the case from other observers so of course it makes him an absolutely fascinating biographer he
2: well yes un, I mean unreliable I mean it's interesting as well you, you you mentioned before about how he he sort of doesn't quite belong with the romantics he doesn't quite belong with the victorians although his you know his life straddled both of those things he sort of does sound certainly from what you've just been saying like a much neater fit in you know in the early 1900s there's um Autobiography fiction, as described by Max Saunders, that was a term coined in 1906, as though as though for him almost.
5: Yes, and I've actually discussed this with Max because I used to work with him. Because I said, do you think? De Quincey, I know with Max's work, he's purely a modernist, but I said, would this work? And he said, I mean, we haven't finished our conversation because how interesting you brought it up. I've just started working on De Quincey. So I think he's looking at it from that point of view. The fiction bit isn't such a good fit, but that blending of modes, I think, makes him a much more modern character. He's also to invoke that, you know, the the Baudelairean flaneur. He, he, there he is in the streets of Soho in the beginning of the 19th century, where he's wandering the streets at night, um, observing people. So he's a strangely sort of modern figure, I think. The politics of De Quincey,
2: he was a reactionary, anti-abolitionist, xenophobic, a despiser of Jacobins.
5: Um, do we see all of this in in this new volume um the the new volume gives you the classic bits I mean quite difficult to bring De Quincey together, particularly because he revised so much of his work. I don't think you get if you're looking for his Uh, particularly his uh, writing on political economy, because he was fascinated by Ricardo. Other academics have argued that he's very influenced by Malthus and ideas about population. And that might explain his strangely, as you say, xenophobic fear of the East, this idea of this sort of swarms of population. He goes on writing um, where his later essays are for two very different journals when he's living in Edinburgh. One for Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine, which was um, more sort of right-leaning, and the other for Tate's Edinburgh magazine, which is far more liberal. So he, I think, just plays both sides. It certainly seems consistent with
2: um, everything that you've said. This idea of politics is almost just another thing that he thought he could kind of take on or off part of a performance, you know, you could play the Tory one moment and the radical in another context. There's a sense that he was always just trying to get the maximum effect out of his his creations and the details or, uh, that he, you know, the facts that he selectively chose from. Yes,
5: I mean, there is something where he is, he considers himself a philosopher, and he's, he's very extraordinarily well read. And I think he is looking for sort of patterns underneath. But I'm not convinced it it doesn't sort of translate into any kind of action I think I was just going to segue there because I was thinking one thing I missed out of it's right to go to that the other way that he seems extraordinarily modern is this understanding of human psychology which is you know still when he's writing in its infancy and yet he comes up with this extraordinary image of the palimpsest you know the vellum that is wiped clean but actually is discovered to have traces of different layers of writing and he Writes beautifully about that in this later work Suspiria, Um De Profundis* about the brain being um, a palimpsest and this understanding that nothing is lost. He's he suddenly he's much more like Freud and Jung, the more a materialist. Uh, psychiatric endeavours of the time he's born in when they're looking at the actual sort of the brain, the phrenological thing the bumps on your brain whereas he is interested in how the brain works.
3: Um, I remember hearing about, um, you tell me whether this is true or Mm. apocryphal, that he would rent um, a room in Edinburgh and work in it, you know, a study Mm -hmm. and he would work and work and work and write and write and write and then he didn't know what to do with all the stuff Mm. so he would lock the door throw away the key, walk away, go and get another room (laughs) and there would be <laughs> little, little cheap rooms all over Edinburgh stuffed with De Quincey's kind of going on about things. Do you, is
5: this true? I just thought it was, is, even if it's not true, it felt, yeah, it felt very... Um... It's a wonderful story. And I have to confess, I didn't know it. I think I'm always, I'm re- always reading biographies and getting so far, but I think it's fantastic. And I will check, but the, the Francis Wilson biography, which is the, I think the most recent, that is fantastic. Even
3: if it's not, it seemed to me, that that was, you could easily believe that he would have done that because of this kind of, yes. I'm going to do a bit of this, I'm going to write about that, I'm going to yep. try and make it go here, I can't make it go here, okay, I'm off yes. somewhere else.
5: And that storing of things, I mean, his book collecting is an extraordinary addiction, so there are, even when he takes over Dove Cottage, and one should say he lives in Dove Cottage, Wordsworth's former home, for so much longer than Wordsworth and Dorothy ever do uh, he takes it over in 1809 and he's still got the lease on it till 1835 but he fills it with books and the village is aghast when sort of carrier after carrier arrives I don't know if they're bullocks or whatever with the cartloads of books and he goes on sort of piling those up everywhere and then of course this is just anecdotal I don't think I put it in the article but he One of his little attacks on Wordsworth is how Wordsworth, you wouldn't let him near your books. Now, that was often said of Dr Johnson, but I didn't know with Wordsworth. And he tells the story of Wordsworth comes in, notices that De Quincey's got the new works of Burke or Burke's works. And De Quincey can't resist saying, I hate the title. He doesn't like that little Chime, Burke's works <laughs> and Wordsworth gets it down. Looks and the it f- is terrible. It is absolutely appalling. One has to say. And he reaches for he he gets down this volume, wants to read it, and the pages are uncut. So he looks around and he grabs the butter knife he's just been using. This is Wordsworth and cuts the pages. And I'm sort of with De Quincey on that one. Oh. I know. I am horrified by that. It is bad form. <laughs> not the butter knife. Not the butter knife. If, if not used, fine. But used is a bit much. It was. It was his. It was his. Book
2: Habit was partly responsible for for breaking him in a sense, wasn't it? I mean, he he, yes. he racked up some tremendous debts and he, I mean, he yes. lived on into his 70s. But
5: it was it was quite a sad life by the end of it. Oh, I he was I and mean, he kept being thrown into debtors' prison. I mean, certainly after he lost his wife and he was strangely uxorious, if that's how you say the word, he was a very devoted husband and father. They had eight children. Um, but yes, always in penury. And one of the things, again, when he attacks Wordsworth, it's on the grounds that Wordsworth is so lucky. Now, if you've read the Prelude, that's not the impression you get. But Wordsworth is so lucky. He's always getting money. He's always being left things. He's always being granted pensions. But actually, De Quincey... Started off life relatively, son of a merchant, uh, a wealthy merchant who there is a problem with his inheritance, but he does inherit. He spends most of his inheritance before it really sort of comes through. And he also acquires money, but he just has a habit of losing it. And I don't think it's all the drugs because laudanum as he was taking it wasn't particularly expensive but the books were
2: and, uh, for for a man so interested in, in memory and narrative and you know how his story would would be told and as you say he reworked it revisited it and reworked it again and again it seems so sad that he appears to have had no control over the way that his own his own life ended and um, Jane Darcy thank you very much for for joining us to talk about Thomas de Quincy
5: today it's a pleasure thank you
2: is all we have time for this week our thanks go to Lucy Scholes and to Jane Darcy thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell if you liked what you heard please consider subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts and or subscribing to the TLS itself you'll find all the pieces we've discussed in this week's paper in print or digitally and we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye